We're going to continue going on in the book of Matthew today, but I want to do something that sort of, before we leave Thanksgiving completely behind, um, kind of continue in that spirit and look at one verse, one small portion of scripture that's been incredibly profound for me. And I think, I mean, this isn't just hype. I think it's one of the most, it's it's likely to have um, the most type of like powerful change in your life if you take it serious. So this is what it says. First Thessalonians, Paul writing to the, to the church of Thessalonica. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I want to focus on that verse 18 part. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ. Like, it is the will of God in Christ for you to be thankful. Uh, oftentimes people will come and ask me, like, I'm trying to figure out the will of God in my life. Like, and I want to know what's God's will concerning my career path, especially with young people, like my career path, or um, should I be getting married or, or some type of significant life decision? And um, the bad news is, is that when you approach the Bible, that's not the way it works. The will of God isn't spelled out like that. It's not like you're going to be reading one day and it's going to be telling, like, you're going to read, oh, you know, Dear reader, I know you think you have a career in music, but you're a little pitchy. Your tone is bad and your rhythm's not great. Um, it's not going to do that. Um, it just doesn't work that way. But what I can tell you today, like I can tell you at least in one sense, concretely what the will of God is for you. And the will of God for you right now in this moment is to be thankful. And so whatever's going on, Whatever's going on in the big picture in the world, whatever's going on personally in your life, good, bad, doesn't matter. Just stop and breathe and give thanks. And maybe right now, take a deep breath and think of all the things you're thankful for. It's like, thank you, Lord. It's thank you. It's the will of God. You are in the will of God right now when you give him thanks. powerful. So just take a moment. I'm going to give you some time. And I know uh, inevitably there might be people here who here find it difficult to be thankful. Maybe for good or for bad reason. Maybe it's because you're just an ungrateful person or maybe you're like, no, there's, you know my story, there's nothing to be thankful for not thankful for Thanksgiving. I didn't like my family. Don't like sharing Thanksgiving with my family. The turkey was bad. I don't like this church. Don't like your preaching. My back hurts. So I have no reason to be thankful. We'll come back to you at the end because you too have reason to give thanks. Okay. So on that note, um, we're going to transition to Matthew 20, and at first it's going to seem like it has nothing to do with thankfulness, but I think, I think thankfulness is woven in here, and we'll see that as we explore it. So Matthew 20, verse 1 through 2. This is a parable of Jesus. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Okay, there's a little bit of historical setting here that's important that would have been familiar to the readers that's a little foreign to us, and it's this. Um, 
There's a man who owns land in a vineyard. And normally you would have a set amount of workers working that land, um, but there's a time where you need extra workers. And that's when the harvest comes. When the grapes are ready to be picked, there is an excess of work. So you need to go out and hire extra workers to pick all the grapes. And so you would go out looking for day laborers. Now, important to note for these day laborers is they're, they're like at the, the bottom of the socioeconomic kind of scale. Um, they rely on daily labor. They don't have like a full-time job. They're not contracted for two years with the owner of the vineyard. They're just out and they're saying, hey, we're hired hands, help us, help us work. And this was such the case that Jewish law at this time said that they had to be given their wage at the end of the day. So you worked, you didn't have to wait two weeks. It came to you at the end of the day. Why? Because they supported family and if they didn't get that daily wage, then there's a good chance that means next day the family doesn't eat. So this is like literal daily bread. You go out and you hope someone hires you so you get a day's wage, your daily bread. A denarius, by the way, um, is roughly the equivalent to a day's wage at this time. So you can see how all of that works. So he goes out and he looks to hire people and he agrees to pay them a denarius. And it goes on. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whoever is right, whatever is right, I will give to you. So they went out. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. Okay, so in the first section, he goes out early in the morning. The Jewish kind of system for telling time at this time was that uh, once the sun rose, that was the beginning of the day, roughly 6 a.m. So this third hour is roughly 9 a.m. And then it says he goes out again at the six hours, that's noon. So he originally goes out early in the morning, 6 a.m., hires some people. Then he's like, need more workers, more grapes to pick. I'm going to go out again three hours later, 9 a.m., hire some more workers. And he says, hey, whatever's right, whatever's fair and just, I'll pay you. And you don't get any of the details. It sort of builds this anticipation embedded into the parable. Then he goes out at noon, need more workers, and he hires some more. And at about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Okay, he goes out now at the 11th hour, which is 5 p.m. 5 p.m. Still work. And he hires these people. Now, the day's pretty much ends, the work day ends at 6 p.m. So they're going to work for an hour. And it doesn't give you the details about how much they're going to get paid, right? Like you might be already calculating, well, if the other dude's got a day's worth of wages, how many of these guys going to get? They only worked one hour. Who knows? But you're not expecting them to get the same amount of money. So he hires these people at all these different slots, early in the morning, 9 a.m., noon, and then all the way at 5 p.m. Then he calls, says in verse 8, that when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call all the people, the laborers, and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now, this establishes an important theme. Remember this, last, first, first, last. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, so these are the guys who started working at 5 p.m., each of them received a denarius, the day's wage. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, 
but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us? Who has borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? So people come in, they've worked an hour, they get a denarius. So the guys who've been working all day go, man, this guy's generous. We're probably about to get some bonuses right now. And they get a denarius too. And they instantly start to grumble. Notice their complaint, their specific words. You make them equal to us. The complaint isn't you're unjust to us or you're not giving us what you said you would because he did. They get what they contracted for, what they contracted for. He's just choosing to be generous to these people who arrived late. Now, important note, um, the people who only worked one hour, they still had families. They still were relying on the day's wage in order to survive. So this guy who owns the vineyard chooses to be generous, chooses to bless us and make sure they're provided for. And the other people who get exactly what they thought they would get are now grumbling. And this is where the parable sort of starts to like get you. Because at first you're going, I kind of agree with these workers, right? That's messed up. That's not fair. Isn't this messed up? They only worked one hour and they get the same as these other people who've been working all day in the heat. The other dude showed up at 5 p.m. when nature, you know, put on air conditioning unit. It's not right. What's the parable trying to do? It's going, you got to watch yourself. Because sometimes in life, you can see someone else receive something. They receive God's generosity, God's blessing. And rather than rejoice in that generosity, you yourself can become bitter or jealous. You ever catch yourself do this? It happens all the time. Like if you're not catching yourself do this, it's either because, you know, God bless you, you're great, or you're not honest with yourself. Because you'll see somebody doing something and you'll see them start doing good in life. And it's like, man, they got a new, look at that new car, man. They got everything. And then you check your heart because what you're saying is, you know what? I work, I work harder than them. I do work harder than them. I deserve more. I deserve more than them. Do you do that? Have you done that? You see someone else succeeding they're receiving God's blessing, God's generosity. I deserve it. I deserve more. And right there, that's how the sin creeps into your heart. I deserve more than they. You make them equal to us. I deserve it, not them. So you see the, the power of the parable. What's Jesus' response? Or the owner of the vineyard's response? He replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose to do with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity so that the last will be first and the first last? So there's key elements here. Do you begrudge my generosity? The parable isn't saying that anyone deserves anything. The people who showed up late they're receiving that out of generosity. It's, it's a gift. It's a blessing. And then notice the words that the landowner says, the owner of the vineyard. He calls him friend. 
He's not like bitter or mad at him. He's not like, yeah, I, I set this trap to reveal your pride. It's a friend. Like, don't you get it? So in a general sense, this parable is teaching us, you better watch out because you can see God blessing on some, God's blessing on someone else and it could create a root of bitterness in you. But then you have to go deeper because you also understand that Jesus isn't just, Jesus rarely just speaks like abstract principles. They usually have like a historical context. Like, so what's the specific thing that Jesus is addressing with this parable? So I'm gonna give you the, the sort of four major views that are out there on what is spe- Jesus specifically addressing with this parable. Some people say that Jesus is, well, we'll call this view the deathbed conversion view, is that Jesus is saying, if you become a follower of him, whether you're 15 years old or 25 years old, or you do it on your deathbed, you still get the eternal reward of heaven. Everyone gets the denarius. And so if you've grown up in a, the church a long time, probably 90% of the time, that's the view that's articulated. It's like this parable teaches us that no matter if you showed up to work at 9 a.m., if you became a Christian at 10, if you showed up to work at 3 p.m., if you became a Christian when you're 50, or if on your deathbed when you're 100 years old, you put your faith in Jesus, all, all those people still get the reward of heaven. That's one view. Uh, the second view says that this has to do with the relationship between Israel and the Gentiles, in that Israel has been, at this moment in history, fa- trying to faithfully serve the God of Israel for 2,000 years since its foundation with the calling of Abraham. And Israel has been receiving the law, the, the, the Torah, the old covenant, the prophets. They have all that history and they've been trying to be faithful. And now all of a sudden, the Gentiles are just gonna get thrown into God's plan. Like out of nowhere, these dudes just get to come in and they get to be a part of the kingdom. They get a seat at the table just like us. Another view, it's very similar, and it has to do with the Pharisees, the religious elite, the, relig- the kind of religious establishment, and new converts. So you have these people in Israel who have been serving God faithfully and obeying the law since the day they were born. And now all of a sudden, what do we see taking place in the Gospels? The tax collectors and the sinners are being brought in. And they're going like, wait a second, I've been serving and these, these dudes are just going to come in and you're going to accept them like, you, like on our level? The last view is probably the most, it's, it's very, I, I don't know anyone who holds to it really today, um, but it is a, a view that's articulated by the church father, so I wanted to, for, to make you aware of it, is that this is a, a picture of all of history. So the first people, the first like the people who showed up at 9 a.m., that's like Adam and Eve. And then you move from Abraham to David all the way up into the present age. Now, in some sense, you could look at it and say, kind of can be mapped out upon all of those. That's certainly fine. Um, it's one of those parables where when you read kind of as much as you can on it, everyone's kind of like, this is what I think, but we can't be sure. So I gave you the views and you can work that out for yourself. What I think is probably taking place is something between view two and three. This has to do, Jesus is speaking specifically to a concrete historical situation, probably dealing with Israel and the Gentiles or possibly the Pharisees and the new converts. And the reason I think that is, is this. There's another parable, parable of the prodigal son. And in the parable of the prodigal son, you see sort of like a parallel principle laid out. If you're familiar with that story, 
there's a dad, a father, and his, one of his sons rebels against him. There's another son who stays faithful. But the rebellious son goes away, squanders his inheritance, lives a reckless life, and then comes back. And the father accepts him. And that's usually the, the part that everyone focuses on, right? The prodigal has returned. The father still loves the son despite his sin and his rebellion. Yes, awesome. But the parable goes on and says that there's an older brother. And the older brother's upset that the prodigal son was accepted. And his complaint is this. I've stayed here. I've worked the land. I've worked your farm. I've worked here the whole time. And now out of nowhere, this guy just gets to come in and he's treated the same as I. You make him equal to me. And so I think what Jesus is addressing is that spirit. And that was certainly the spirit that was taking over the Pharisees, the kind of religious elite and the religious establishment of the day. So something like that is going on. But I think in general, there's also this idea and a warning just for us is that when God chooses to save somebody or bless somebody or move in someone's life, we should be happy that God is being generous for someone else. And if not, you have to watch it because whenever you take the posture of, I deserve what they got, I deserve more, I'm better than them, you're on a slippery slope. Now, Jesus takes a, a quick turn and says this. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. This is what we call the third prediction of the passion. When I say the word passion, I'm not using it in English, I'm using it in Latin. Latin, the word passion means suffer, to suffer. So this is the third time Jesus predicts his own suffering. Now what makes this one a little bit different than the other two passion predictions is this one gives some more details. In the other two, he says, I'm gonna die and I'll be raised. But this one, he says, I'll be handed over to the Gentiles to be mocked, to be crucified and to be killed. Now you have to understand conceptually for a first century Jewish person, this is, that's the worst it gets. You, you are going to be handed over to the Gentiles to be tortured and mocked and crucified. It's the most vile death, the, the death that's reserved for the criminal or the slave. That, that description is by definition the opposite of what Messiah is going to do. Like definitionally, Messiah is going to go into Jerusalem to drive out wicked Gentiles and establish his rule and reign and kingdom. The opposite of that is being handed over to Gentiles to be mocked, tortured, and crucified. So this is so beyond what anyone was thinking. I don't even think it registers. It like doesn't even click. Because you often wonder like, how did the disciples not know what was gonna happen? Didn't he tell them? It's like plain as day, didn't he tell them? I think this is so beyond their categories that when Jesus says this, everyone's like, okay, whatever that means. Like they don't have the categories to say, oh, that's what's gonna happen literally. Probably someone just goes, yeah, he's talking in parables again. You know, he does that. He gives these cryptic parables. We don't understand all of them. Mm, go on from there. It's just, it's in a different category. 
But remember, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And then another quick turn. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now keep in mind what Jesus just said. He is going to go into Jerusalem and experience the worst possible thing to be handed over, to be shamed and mocked and crucified and killed. Like the worst thing you could think of, that's what's going to happen to me. Hey, can we sit next to you, be at your right and your left? Like we want to be the best. Now, there's a reason behind this question. It probably is rooted from what happens about a chapter earlier. An event occurs and then Peter replies with this. He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What do we get? What are we going to get? And Jesus tells him the truth. Jesus says to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So Jesus tells the disciples, you guys are gonna leave everything for me, and guess what? You're going to sit on 12 thrones. In the new kingdom, you are going to rule and reign. You sit on these 12 thrones. So being in the top 12, though, isn't good enough. Do you see the logic of the mother's question? A chapter earlier, it's like, disciples, don't, like, make no mistake, you, you're going to have a special place in the kingdom. Top 12 isn't good enough. So the mother of Zebedee comes and is like, hey, can my two boys get in the top three? You know, you're the one, one of the sons be two, other one be three, you can pick. I don't really care, I have a favorite. One could be number two, number three, doesn't matter. Just both my boys in the two and three slot. Now, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, the, the sons are James and John. So what you gotta know is we don't know all the details and the dynamics of how this went down, but it's not, it's, it's not, it's, it's very likely that they're all in on it together. It's not like James and John, they're not asking this question. And it's just a mom who wants what's best for her children. When you read the other gospel accounts, it probably becomes, I think it becomes clear that James and John are probably like, hey mom, we can't ask this question because it'll look really bad on us. But if you do it, it's just a concerned mom, not two greedy kids. Can you go ask if we get number two and number three? We'd be... We really, just as long as we're ahead of Peter, we don't like him, you know? <laughs> He's annoying. And what's interesting is that, um, again, this idea, first, last, last, first, they're wanting, they're wanting to be the, the, the best, the first. The other important element to note is the faith of this mother. Um, you can immediately knock her and act like, like that's a ridiculous question well she's a mom she's she's although her sons are probably pushing her too it's not wrong for a mom to want what like no give my children are part of the 12 give them the best position but she has no doubt in her mind that jesus is the messiah 
Like, she, she is clear. You are the Messiah. You are going to rule and reign. You are going to sit on the throne. And when you do that, can you have a special place for my two kids? This will be important for later. But as of right now, her faith is clear. Jesus responds. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. This is is powerful. Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they're like, yes, we will. And I don't even know if they thought it through. I think they're just like excited. But they also could just be looking back at the Old Testament and looking at one of the two major images or one of the two major ways in which the image of the cup functions. Because in the Old Testament, the cup is often a cup of blessing. Think about um, my cup overfloweth. But also the cup in the Old Testament is an image of God's wrath. So maybe they're not thinking about God's wrath. They're just like, can you drink of the blessings? Yeah, give us the blessings, Lord. Or maybe they're not even thinking through it completely. But for you as the reader, you need to know that that cup functions two ways. It's a blessing sometimes, or it's also an image of judgment. And Jesus says, can you drink of the cup that I will drink? Of course we can. Verse 23, he says to them, in time, you will drink my cup. In time, you will. Not yet, you're not ready, but in time, you will. And then he says, it's the father who decides who's on the left and the right. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This first part is kind of funny because it says the other 10 heard it and they're, they're indignant, they're mad. And you got to know it's probably not they're mad because how dare you ask the honorable rabbi such a question? They're like, how, how are you going to try to sneak up on us like that? I... I was going to ask my mom next Tuesday to ask Jesus the same question, man. <laughs> you know, you guys ain't playing fair. This is wrong. Because everyone wants the top slot. Everyone wants to be first. And Jesus, again, articulates this idea of the first shall be last and the last shall be first to such a degree that he says, look at the way the kingdoms of the, the world work. How do the kingdoms of the world work? Look at that. That's not the way my kingdom will be. It shall not be so among you. My kingdom, those who want to be great will be servants. Those who want to be first will be last. So if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you learn to be a servant. You learn to be a servant. Now this isn't... um, like some thing where you just say, okay... I put, I'm going to put myself in this lowly position and think lowly of myself. No, like, no, the scriptures are articulating this idea that there is power in being a servant, that 
that God changes the world through his servant-like followers. And we as servants look to the ultimate servant who goes to the utmost to serve his people, dying on a cross. And so one of the things that the first Christians would face is a world of hostility and persecution. So when they look back at these scriptures, they, they would say, we're gonna serve like Jesus. And they would think, of course, things like how Jesus did foot washings and, and cared for the poor and the needy and all that stuff. But in their immediate mind, in their immediate memory, they also had persecution and suffering. And they would say things like, just as Christ suffered, so must we suffer. Which is, is a completely different mentality because just if, if we're being honest, like in our cultural context, no one's coming to like kill us. Now, who knows? Uh, the world changes very fast and you never know what type of persons, persecutions could break out and stuff like that. But at this present moment, like following Jesus isn't gonna get you killed. But for the first Christians, they, when they looked at Jesus serving, they also saw his cross. And so they committed themselves to that type of lifestyle. We are going to serve and love people. We will be last. And in doing so, we reveal the power of the cross. So it becomes very important for us today in a world where we're not facing the type of reality that some of those first Christians did is how can we then, in the midst of honestly, a, a, a fairly blessed life, like an incredibly blessed life, how can we adopt the posture of the servant? Because it's not gonna likely be laying down our life. And that's something for all of us to think about. It's something that it's, it's, so, it's so easy and practical of a type of a sermon point. Like you could do this to children, to, to youth group, like anybody. Like how can you better serve people? Because when you serve and you take upon the posture of the servant, you're taking upon the posture of the Messiah. And that's not weakness, that is strength. That is the power of the cross. So think about like right now, how can I better serve people in my life? It's my family, my coworkers. Like, how can I do better at this? The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Now, when you think through that, you also have to understand that you have the perfect example, which we've just been talking about. Jesus himself is our example. Remember, he just said this. As he was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. Now, on the way, he said, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Now, if, if you've been a Christian a long time, you can almost become numb to this. But you have to understand what Jesus is, is outlining here for us. In all of existence, in all of reality, in all of the cosmos, who is number one? Who's at the very top? Who is the true first? It, it's God himself. And this, like the central claim of Christianity is that the highest being in all of reality, the very grounds for reality, that that one who is truly first comes down and doesn't just come sort of low, or almost last, but he goes to the position that is conceptually the lowest. It is the bottom of the bottom. 
you can't think of a lower place for a first century Jewish person than what's mapped out there. I will be handed over to the Gentiles to be beaten, to be mocked, to be tortured, to be crucified. Like, th- this, this idea is, is radical. The pinnacle of existence goes down to the bottom of bottoms. He is stripped naked and nailed to a cross to suffer and die. So, the example that we have can be no greater example. If God himself would do that, how much more do we serve in whatever way we can? Now, we gotta go back to some characters in our story. Um, Because this was the cup that Jesus was going to drink, the crucifixion. And there was those three people, remember? The mother of the sons of Zebedee and James and John. And they said, we'll drink that cup. We'll drink that cup. And Jesus says, you're not ready. You're not ready. But they would be. Eventually, James, son of Zebedee, would be imprisoned and beheaded. He would be the first apostle to die. Stephen is the first martyr in the book of Acts, but the first apostle to be killed for their faith is James. What happened to John? He would ultimately be exiled on the island of Patmos. Patmos is an island, it's about 10 miles long, six miles wide. It's a volcanic island and it's, it's a barren land of nothing. It's where you send the worst criminals or political dissidents to suffer and to die. It's the disease, starvation, who knows? But the treatment wasn't good. Now what's interesting is John um, is the, the last apostle alive. So James is the first to die, John would be the last. So for the two sons of Zebedee, there's a special place. The first apostle to be killed and then the last to die. We don't know exactly all the details, but John is probably in his 90s, isolated and alone on the island of Patmos. And you gotta imagine how difficult it is for this guy. I mean, not only because he's in isolation and an old man on a, on a place where he's facing all kinds of horrific treatment and just cruelty and, and hunger and, and more, but he's also seen like all of his brothers die. All the other apostles at this point have been killed in horrific ways. Like your brothers, your friends, the people that you served with and minister with, they've all died horrifically. And now you're the last one alone on an island. And in your old age, maybe, we don't know this, but maybe his faith is is facing some difficult times or maybe it's doing well, we don't know. But it's on that island in exile on Patmos that the old man John records this. Revelation 1, 9 through 11. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why is he there? 
because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then we get the book of the Revelation. First apostle to die, last one, alone on the island. But that's where we get the book of Revelation from. He writes it in exile on Patmos. There's another character. We can't forget her, she's very important. Remember the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Remember how we noticed uh, she was a woman of faith. It was like, when you're reigning, make my sons number two and three. Now, I can almost assure you that she thought the, the way the Messiah would reign was not gonna be the way it turned out. She didn't imagine Jesus going into Jerusalem to be crucified. That was not, I think, I don't think that that was in her understanding. She truly believed Jesus was the Messiah, but no one was thinking it was gonna go down the way it did. So when Jesus is handed over, what happens to most of his followers? They scatter, they run, right? Matthew 27, the scene of the cross. There were also many women there looking out from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. She didn't run. She was faithful. Even though the way of the Messiah turned out to be a lot different than she thought, she was at the cross. And she saw what the cup he was talking about actually looks like. And she would ultimately, in faithfulness, offer up her two sons to the ministry. Her two sons would be the first and the last apostles to die for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a temptation at this point to be, man, this is dark and gloomy. All three of those people is horrible. James dead, John dead, Mary's there at the cross seeing what's gonna happen. I mean, the mother of the sons of Zebedee's there with Mary about to see what the way of the cross looks like and what's in store for her two kids. Man, this is, this is like, it's sad what happened to them. So you gotta stop. It's like, where are they at now? They are in glory. James and John and their mother are in glory. You don't have to feel sorry for them. They are in heaven right now and make no mistake about it, they do not regret their faithfulness to Jesus. No one in heaven who suffered on earth for their faithfulness to Jesus regrets it. For eternity they say, thank you Jesus that I was faithful until the end. They're in glory. We don't have to feel sorry for them, it feels sorry for us. We're the one in the pitiful, miserable existence. They, they're living great. And so, we, we, we look back and we say, man, this, this, this idea of first shall be last, last shall be first is, is of utmost importance. This is, this is how the kingdom works. Like the mechanics of God's kingdom function in this manner. 
Last shall be first, first shall be last. And it's not to say that, again, being last or being a servant is weak. That's not what they're saying. It's saying that taking the position of the servant and putting yourself last, that's actually how the power of God is manifested. And that's most articulated at the cross because the lowest you could go is a cross. But in the image of the cross, you have the very image that will save the nations. It is not as if Christ coming down, dying on a cross, proves that he's weak. No, by him doing that, it proves that he's the king of glory. So that's how the kingdom works. So if you wanna be first, learn to be last. If you wanna learn to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be a servant. Now we got one last thing. Because I said I would come back to the people who aren't grateful. You know, you said, I liked, I'm glad some of you guys are thankful, but I'm not thankful. I don't like Thanksgiving. Turkey's horrible. There's a reason why we only eat it once a year. You guys ever think about that? Everyone pretends like it's this great dish. If it was really good, you'd be eating it more than one time a year. Turkey's bad, Thanksgiving bad, don't like my family, got a backache, don't want to be here, the chair's uncomfortable, didn't eat breakfast. If you think you got nothing, nothing to be thankful for, you have this. He who was first became last in order that he might raise you to take you into the highest of heavens and share his portion with you. He who is truly first became last in order to raise you up and give you a share of his portion. The highest of high to the lowest of low to bring you up. He who was first became last to give you a seat at his table. So if you've got nothing else going for today, nothing else going for you today, you still have some good news you still have reasons to be thankful. And so you too can fulfill the will of God by giving thanks in all circumstances. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he takes bread and he says, this is my body, it's given for you. It's given to you. Now, in the most basic sense, I know this could kind of seem childish, but you know what, when, when someone, when you give child dinner or something, or you give a child something and they take it, what do you tell them to do? Say thank you. Jesus says, this is my body given for you. It's given to you. And so God's people say, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And likewise, Jesus takes the cup. It's the blood of the new covenant. It's his blood poured out for us. And so now we, in turn, we give our allegiance to Jesus and say, you've been faithful to us. Help us to remain faithful to you until you return.
And as always, as I pray here so often, we say, Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks. We are a grateful people. We are a thankful people. You've been so good to us. Thank you that you left heaven and came to the worst that earth had to offer and you did that willingly in order that we might be brought into your family, into your fold. And so as we close in worship, may we give you proper thanks and adoration. You are worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.